My name's Jason Fleming, and this is the More Than My Past podcast from the Forward Trust. Lauren Burnett's story of addiction and recovery comes with two main lessons. The dangerous appeal of drug culture among rebellious young people looking for a tribe to join, and the amazing turnaround that seemingly lost people are capable of. Lauren comes from Jersey and started taking hard drugs in her early teens. Moving to London and crossing paths with Camden icons like Amy Winehouse and Pete Doherty only tightened addiction's grip on Lauren's throat. She suffered a heroin overdose that inflicted severe damage on her head and was in hospital with a collapsed lung when she learned of Winehouse's death. Using that low as a turning point, Lauren got clean and set up a fashion brand with global customers and a hugely successful pop-up shop in LA. She's also now a mother of three and works in fostering and adoption. My chat with this amazing and inspiring person hit some tough moments, but stick with it. The message I came away with was wholly uplifting. Your success has been in fashion. It's fascinating, you know, because a lot of people that I speak to who've been through addiction like you, a lot of people have made their success part of their experience, you know, so they'll be running safe houses for, you know, prostitutes coming out of prison or whatever so it's such it was so refreshing and amazing to you know and equally as valid to have to hear your story I think I was always creative but I had such like low self-esteem as uh, an early teenager I just never thought I was very bright or didn't think I was creative didn't feel like I really I just had no self-worth basically but I always absolutely loved fashion and then when I got clean. I just knew because God, it's a big long story. I don't know where to start. Listen, why don't you start? Tell me, yeah. tell me about you. The fact you'd had a lack of confidence, but you at say 10, 11, 12, just before you started using drugs, where were you? And you know, what was your relationship with your parents and stuff? And where did that lack of self-esteem come from? My, my dad's from Glasgow and my mum's from Liverpool. And they met over here doing like seasonal work, mm-hmm. but they were both like hustlers and grafters, you know, and they'd like work all the time. And my dad ended up opening a electrical company and it done really well and he started investing in property and we'd um like live in one flat at the bottom whilst he'd done up a house and then we'd sell it and we Mm -hmm. just moved around like that and my parents had done well because they came from like two really rough parts of their cities and they had great characters they still do have great characters um and then my dad got testicular cancer or prostate cancer I think they call it and then my mum and my dad's relationship really broke down and they ended up getting a divorce but it was very volatile Mm-hmm. You know, some people, they'll be like, oh, my mom and dad got divorced, but it didn't really affect me. You know, I think mine really affected me. I think I was like massively looking for like male approval and male role model. And um, I was just looking for love, I think. And my parents at the time, which, you know, they're, they're human beings. They were going through their own stuff. They couldn't give me the level of like attention that I needed at that time. So I just went looking for it in other other people really and other men. And then that's how it all really sort of started. Um, I was so young though. I was only 14 mm-hmm. when I first tried heroin. So 
And it's, I did such a jump, you know, like I'm always like, like there wasn't like a, a year of drinking, then like a year <laughs> of like ecstasy or something. It was literally like within that year for to end of being 14 to 15, I'd literally done everything. It was almost like I'd found this little world that I could escape to and I didn't have to feel how I was feeling. I was never very good at dealing with or processing my emotions. So if I could escape from them, any means possible, I'd I'd do that, you know? And was there a peer group, you know, was there a peer group for you to take it so young or, or were you unique in your age group? You know, were there, were there loads of 14-year-olds, you know? No, no, the- I, I was quite unique. I started hanging around with people like two, three years above me at school that went to different schools as well. I like really seeked it, you know, like I, it wasn't like, oh, whoops, it fell onto my lap. It was like, I wanted to hang around with the baddest, you know, anything that was slightly naughty. I was like, so intrigued. Jersey's a bit behind. And in that time, it was like 1998, So that was our real rave culture. That was like really kicking off back then. And we had like uh, music venues that played like house music. And so there was like a real like sort of like rave scene going on there. And it wasn't common, but there were some people that would go and like use heroin, mainly smoke it. And I just, I wanted to try it. I did. And the thing is, is I fell for a, a boy I was 14 and he was like my first love I was he could have told me to like jump in front of a car and I'd I just loved him I was obsessed with him and he was a heroin addict he was 17 I was 14 it was kind of controlling though in a way because I didn't know how to prepare the drugs myself or use them myself So I was very much at his mercy. So and in that time, I sort of was taught how to steal, how to commit credit card fraud. You know, at that time, at that time, also that you were with that fella, that was also was that also a time, you know, I know when you came to London and stuff, you started knocking around with Amy Winehouse and and Doherty and but they must have been people you were aware of. And were they the guy and, and that whole culture of the, and what I'm trying to get to is that the lifestyle, which includes the fashion of that culture, was that something that attracted yeah, you as well? Definitely. And do you know what? Not many people actually ask that question, but I think it's really pivotal because it's like, I think I've always loved like subcultures or mm-hmm. like pop culture or like scenes or things. Well, you can see that with your fashion label. I mean, it's a very culty thing, you know, it, and, it, yeah. and, it, and it crosses many different areas. But, the look, you know, Pete Doherty, for instance, you know, the whole look and the poeticness and the kind of, oh. I mean, I've always been obsessed with that too. And, you know, part, part of that fashion is the, is the drugs. Yeah, yeah. Definitely, definitely. It's an identity. I understand that. It, that was a huge thing. And for a while, I felt like I belonged for the first time as well, you know where I struggled with who I was, I actually felt like I belonged in this little, like, Bonnie and Clyde madness. Mm. Like, I thrived. I felt like I thrived in the chaos, you know? And I was so young and so impressionable. I didn't realise what I was doing, and I didn't realise that it was going to last forever, the infliction of addiction. Whoa, get that down. That's a poem. 
I think that's one of Pete Doherty's lines, actually. <laughs> <laughs> That brings us on to something I wanted to talk to you about. Um, it's interesting that you, you and me are uh, recognising the cultural significance and the sort of the gang or the cult or the group that is, you know, drug addicts and the music that goes with it. But there is um, a community, isn't there? Yeah. That's what you had. That's what you had. Even though it was a dark and hellish place, there is a community. Yeah, definitely. And the thing is, is like in Jersey as well, because it's so small and it is very hidden. You don't have homeless on the street. You can't, you know, like if I went over to London or I went to uh, Australia or wherever I, I was moving to next, I'd like always look for a big issue seller or a prostitute to help me score, you know. But we don't have any of that here. So it's very, very much a hidden underbelly. Yeah, once you're sort of introduced into that world, it is quite, for a young girl, quite alluring. And, and you know, your period of addiction in in drug addict terms, you know, if you survive it, you know, it, it was relatively short, you know, in the sense that you stopped when you got pregnant. Yeah. And how old, was, how old were you then, Lauren? I was 27. And um, the crazy thing is, is like... I always believe in getting signs from the universe and I'm quite spiritual. I think things happen at the right time for the right reason. And my health was completely and utterly shot. Yeah. I was undergoing three and a half years of reconstructive plastic surgery to my head after I'd overdosed on a bedside table lamp and uh, I was left burning there for like eight hours. So I was... To, in order to get the lamp off my head, which had melted into my whole scalp, oh. I had to be de-scalped. So they had to graft the skin from the top of my legs to my head. But then I was always going to be bald at the top of my head because I'd killed all the hair follicle. So the only other thing they could do was input two empty balloons that basically looked like breast implants. So they put them either side of my head where there was still some hair. They put the balloons in and then every week I went to the Royal Free in London and they injected sterile water into the balloons until they were fully expanded. And then they removed the balloons with the stretched skin with the hair attached on it. They pulled it over the bald patch and put my head back together. But I needed like bolts at the side of my face so that... The skin that was being stretched was only on my head and not on my face. It was crazy, honestly. And the images, and they're honestly, they're nuts. Like, it's a good party piece. I always like, look at this photo of my head. <laughs> Lauren, I mean, that's that's horrendous for any any person. And then to, for it to be a woman and then to be a young woman who's also... Yeah, I guess very, very conscious of your, your image because, sure. you know, the yeah. fashion and stuff was all part of that. And now yeah. suddenly one of your greatest assets, which was how great yeah. you look, was yeah. gone. Yeah, exactly. Not only that, that was just one side of my illnesses. I'd contracted MRSA in the hospitals because my immune system was just so... Shot. Yeah, exactly. My lungs had started completely packing in. In the space of two years... I had four admissions into ICU with collapsed lungs 
And that was basically because I couldn't inject anymore. It, I just, it was impossible. I couldn't find veins anymore. So I'd gone to smoking it. But the tinfoil, the chemicals on the tinfoil just really made me like fight for breath. It was so bad. It was like I had to get the heroin inside me, but I just, every way I was doing it, my body just wouldn't take it anymore, you know? Lauren, you know, you know, when you, um, if you break your leg, you know, everyone runs around you and it helps you. But I'd be interested to hear what it must be like going into hospital when the NHS or the doctors or the nurses are um, aware that you've, in, in their terms, done this to yourself. You know, yeah. what's it like? What's that like? I have to say, out of everywhere in the world and every person I've come across, the worst stigma and the worst judgment I've ever felt is lying in a hospital bed. Because as soon as they look at your medical records and they see what you're doing to yourself, there's zero sympathy. Some are actually mean, like flat out mean, you know? But you get the odd one that's good. But the majority of it is what the bloody hell do you expect us to do? Uh, so yeah there's no like love or care or anything like that but saying that I had a really good one in the end because the last time that I went into hospital for my lungs um, I was in intensive care and the man next to me had uh, died and his family were saying goodbye and I was made 100% immobile even sitting up, I'd get so out of breath, I just, I couldn't breathe at all. But after the man had passed away and I heard his like, beep, the nurse came over to me and said, we have to do these extensive x-rays on your lungs. Is there any chance you're pregnant? This sounds a bit crazy, but um, I after my operation with my head, I'd gone home and gone into labour and didn't know I was pregnant. And they hadn't checked to see if I was pregnant before I had the operation. So, and I'd never had that before. And it was so, on, even though I didn't know I was pregnant and I lost the baby, I felt grief, like real grief. For the first time, I was like, I think that baby was going to save me. I, I think that baby is the love I've always wanted and the love I've always searched for. And then uh, when I was lying there in the hospital bed, it must have been about eight, nine months later after that, after losing the baby. And I said, I don't know, but, you know, I I think you're fertile after you lose a baby. So maybe, who knows? They tested my colostomy bag and they said, you are about three weeks pregnant, three, four weeks pregnant. But the chances of the baby surviving are so minimal because we don't know how you're going to get on yet, you know. Yeah. So I was just so shocked, and that I looked up at the TV. How bizarre is this? I'm lying in the UCLH hospital in Camden Town, and I look up to this TV, and it says Amy Winehouse found dead today. I know it sounds crazy, but we had the same dealer. But yeah, so I I knew her. We weren't like friends, but I knew of her and we'd have a chat. And every time I'd see her, she'd say, as you read, and I'd show her, look what's going on. It's this bit today, that bit. Um, So when she died, I just, because I I admired her. She was like, she was a huge icon and her music just spoke to me. And 
I just thought she was like this cool cartoon character that hung around Camden Town. Well, what we were just talking about, about the culture that you even started delving into when you were in Jersey, she was the queen of it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I always looked up to her and I remember once having a conversation with her in The Good Mixer about wanting to be a mum. And I said, I have always wanted to be a mum. And I just I just thought it was like, maybe this was destiny that I was meant to get clean now, you know, to because I found out I was pregnant with Camden. Sorry, I called my son Camden. <laughs> How poignant in the end. But, yeah, um, that is cute. When I thought this has to be it then, you know, maybe this is having Camden is what is going to save me. So, but I was still highly like dosed up on opiates. So I asked one of the nurses if they'd bring me down, you know, like two mil every other day, just so that like my body wasn't as physically dependent as it was when I got there so that I'd have a chance to keep the baby. That's all I was thinking. And at first they were like, well, the girl, the woman nurse was like, you know, this isn't the priory, it's the NHS, you know, don't do those sorts of things. But there was a really, really nice man. And uh, I always think about him and I wish I'd got his name, but uh, he helped me, he helped me come down. So by the time I actually discharged, was discharged from the hospital, I was like manageable. You know, I wasn't into like full cold turkey or anything like that. Well, Lauren, was that the death of Amy Winehouse was almost like a crystal ball experience in the sense that you could see what, you know, she died and you're like, well, that's... Yeah, and but it wasn't it wasn't like boom and that was it. You know, like no. I got clean and was happy <clears> ever after. Like I managed to get through the pregnancy, but as soon as Camden was born, I had really bad like wanting to use again and mm-hmm. it was rocky. I mean, obviously you've done the steps, but that journey and and you know, like you said, it wasn't it wasn't a straight upward journey, but that journey from from being immobile, watching Amy Winehouse die on, on the television, to you, you know, your fitness has always been important to you, and your body, the change of your body. I mean, how noticeable was that? You know, as you as you come off smack and you um, start eating properly and looking after yourself properly, how how is that progression? How does that? I mean, is it is it a, is it a great inspiration when you start to be able to? you know, to, to, to look after yourself and when your body starts to work as you want it to. Well, basically, what I'm saying is from that to fighting two rounds, and I've seen you've got a stinging jab. Three, three. Sorry, three rounds, three rounds. I mean, I wouldn't want to get smacked by you now, that's for sure. <laughs> but, yeah, I think because my dad was a heavyweight from Glasgow and he'd boxed and, you know, was known in the boxing community and then my brother boxed as well for years and... um I always used to watch like them training for a fight or just training, especially yeah. my dad because he was a lot older. So he was just training. I was so inspired all the time by like the amount of dedication and the hill sprints. And mm-hmm. I just used to look at them and think, wow, like I'll, I'll never be able to do something like that. I can barely make it to the top of the stairs. But Sorry just, for the listeners that I'm just because I've been stalking uh, Lauren. So basically, Lauren's progression of, of recovery has gone hand in hand with a progression towards fitness, right, Lauren? Yeah, 
definitely. And she did uh, three ra- three rounds of proper boxing, which you can see on YouTube. <laughs> and it's not pretty, man. I mean, you've got a stinging jab and uh, you really it was impressive. All the money we made that night went to Silkworth, which is Silkworth Lodge is our local drug and alcohol rehab centre. And they've just opened a new one called Hope House for teenagers, which... Oh, I just know would have probably saved my life back in the day, you know. That's amazing. I mean, that, like you said, that Hope House, which is, a, to people who are listening, there's a, a place called Silkworth Lodge, which you do a lot of work with, don't you, Lauren? Yeah. yeah. And, and now they've got a new branch called Hope House, which would have been where, you know, 14-year-old, hopefully 14-year-old Lauren or the future 14-year-old yeah. Lauren would have gone yeah. and maybe avoided the next 15 years of agony. Yeah, exactly. That's it. Because back then you got sent to St. Saviour's Hospital, which is like a mental institution. And it looks like one as well. You know, it's like really pre, you know, that real creepy. Yeah, Victorian. Institution. Yeah. You had to go there to to detox and there was no spiritual program other than drying you out, you know, which like drying you out is nothing compared to the work you have to do. Listen, also, I've got to cover this because it's the, mm-hmm. my favourite bit of the whole story because what you do celebrates life so much and what you do is so joyful and uh, exciting and dangerous and cheeky and, you know, the fashion label you've created. It, it just seemed, along with your stopping using drugs and you're continuing to get fit you created a fashion label called Luella Rockefeller and now I want you to talk about it but it seemed a very quick journey from you starting that to having what was an incredibly successful and trendy pop-up on Melrose in Los Angeles yeah I mean I know you've told this story before but tell our listeners because it's it's such a great story it's so nuts like it was literally a dream and you know when they say if you work hard and you work hard on yourself, you know, things will come in your path. It couldn't have happened more perfectly for me, really. When I got, when I first got clean, um, I obviously had Camden. He was a little baby and I was um, decided that I was going to start trying to get fit and healthy. So I got a personal trainer. This personal trainer was my, one of my brother's best friends from boxing. And he was a really, really good boxer as well. Um, and we ended up falling in love, which oh, was so scary because I didn't know that. I'd never been with anyone sober, yeah. you know, so it was actually really hard to be that vulnerable, you know, with another human being and then not be any substances or anything to hide behind. We ended up getting together because my body was so healthy <laughs> I fell pregnant pretty much straight away. We were really scared and nervous. And my sponsor was as well very nervous. They thought that maybe it was a bit too early in my recovery to have another child. And Well, anyway. it breaks every rule. As, you, as only you yeah. could do, Lauren, as only you could do. <laughs> yeah, I know, it does break every rule. We ended up having Luella. So then Lu- Luella was born. And there's 20 months difference between Camden and Luella. And my partner was opening up his own gym. There was just so much going on, but I knew I needed something for myself, you know, like something to keep my mind alive. I used to buy loads of um, secondhand Burberry stuff and then I'd get such a good markup. I'd sell them on this site called Vestia in Paris. Yeah. 
and um, a DHL driver would come as soon as it had been bought and take it. And I'd make a really good profit margin on it. So because Jersey... But you understood and had the passion for the clothes, you know? Yeah. And I knew the marketplace. So I knew how much I could be charging for stuff. I loved that I could be a bit gritty. So I'd like break into like abandoned buildings and just, you know, take a few sneaky shots with a model. And it was just exciting and so creative. Well, Lauren, you've just found, you just, you found another, another tribe basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And something that set me on fire, you know, I loved it. So one day I got a message in my Twitter account and it was from a man and he said he was an investor and would I fly to New York to meet <laughs> I him? I know, to meet him and his wife. And he's interested in buying half the company. I arrived there. He put me up in a really nice hotel. He was moving from New York to LA. So he called me once I got back to Jersey and was like, I'm also investing in this company that's owns retail real estate in prime locations across America. And there is a shop that has come up opposite Alexander McQueen. And it's like, it's bigger than our top shop over here, but it was huge. And um, it was on Melrose Avenue. So I didn't even think about it. I was like, yes, I'll do it. I want to do it. The maddest thing is, is the last person who was in the shop before me was Rihanna. I know it was crazy because she just opened it, uh, her Fenty brand, her lingerie brand. So she was the one that was there before me. It was meant to only be open for a month, but we stayed open for like nine months because it was good and the trade was good and I love LA. And Lauren, how was that? Because you know, yeah. as you know, my day job, I'm an actor and I've worked out there quite a lot. And yeah. but how was that, Lauren? Because the thing is, L.A. is a great place. Yeah. But when you're in L.A. on your own at night, everyone you know and love is asleep and and you are totally anonymous. Yeah. You can do what you like there and you can go to a very, very dark place. How yeah. was that with your recovery? And it was you're still quite raw. Yeah. So like my recovery all the time, I come through tricky bits. I've had a tricky bit recently with lockdown. Yeah. I just went to meetings and I Mm. loved it because one day I'd go to a meeting in Beverly Hills, which was literally nuts. They had lighting and like microphones and stuff. I was like, what the hell? Like my art meetings at home are just like, basically you're lucky you get a chair and a, yeah, and a bourbon biscuit. Yeah, that's it. Do you know what? It's such, <laughs> Lauren, it's so, it's so inspiring talking to you because you reek of positivity, you know, and amazing the, the journey you've come through and, you know, to go from stationary in a bed to boxing and th- th- your whole story is such an inspiration, Lauren. And I know you're still struggling, but keep going, yeah. man, because it's inspiring and it's great for other people to hear your journey. Yeah, thanks. I I do love to talk about it as well, you know, because it keeps me like not forgetting where I've come from, you know. But, you know, Lauren, that, that you know, when you go right back to the beginning, just to finish up, but when you go right back to the beginning of that story, that, you know, that young 12-year-old girl who had no self-confidence and full of self-doubt and, yeah. and the drugs maybe filled that hole for a while, but it's like you have to look at the successes you've had and to a degree they must fill a hole in you and, and give you a little more confidence than you used to have. 
Yeah, definitely. If you're interested in hearing more about the More Than My Past campaign and viewing dozens more inspirational stories, check out the campaign website, morethanmypast.org.uk. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends, subscribe and look out for future episodes.